Life is a journey from one place to the next, always in continual motion. Some seasons are filled with awe and wonder, while some are filled with hardship and pain, each step more difficult than the last. Still, the journey doesn't end. It's always moving forward. You find strength in your feet striking the pavement, one step at a time, as you become closer and closer to your destination. All the while being guided by this still, soft voice that says, keep going, we're getting closer, you're almost there. Good morning, Connection Church. Hope everybody's doing okay today. My name is Joey Fennell. I serve as executive pastor here and uh, filling in for Brandon today. And uh, Billy will be with us next week. Uh, Brandon and Susan, their family are on a, a much needed vacation and rest. And we want to pray for them this week as they are uh, enjoying Florida. Hopefully they'll have some decent weather and it'll be 112 degrees like it is here. So they can enjoy that right along with us. Um, <clears throat> but 112 feels a lot better when you're sitting by the pool, doesn't it? Or in it. Um, we're going to continue on in uh, Joshua, the book of Joshua today, and we're going to cover all of chapter 7. So at times I'm probably going to talk fast, so you're going to have to listen fast because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, but some really, really good stuff here because it, this part of the story takes a turn. It's been so good up until this point. Just victory after victory and things going very well for Joshua's leadership and for the Israelite people. But then things sort of take a turn. So look with me to Joshua chapter 7. And we're going to begin right with verse 1 there and jump right into this. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, and then when they, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful for the morning. We're thankful for blessings of rain. We're thankful for the sunshine. And we're thankful for most of all the breath of life that you give us each and every day. God, as we go into this text, we pray for your guidance. I pray for each person here, each one of us, God, who are here to hear your word today, that it penetrates our souls, you plunder around in our hearts, God, and expose things that need to be exposed. Help us to heal where we need to be healed, God. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So have you ever had a great experience? You've really accomplished something mightily. I mean, you, 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 you nailed it. You hit it. And things were really, really going well. Early on in my life, I had sort of this experience and, and playing uh, baseball through high school. I had a desire to play ball in college. I just really wanted to do that. Now, I wasn't the absolute best on the team, but I wasn't the worst either. And I just felt like, man, maybe, maybe I can do this. So 
One of the games that we had, a, a coach from the Citadel came down, the head coach, and he was watching one of our pitchers, and he was there to see him, and I was going to try to just get a, have a talk with him. So the game went on, and it was one of those great games where I committed two errors in the field and struck out three times, so it was a good showing that I had for this coach, and I felt really good about my performance. So I go up with my friend, and we sit down with the coach, and I was just kind of tagging along, and I said, Coach, I, I, I'd really like to play with you as well. And he said, well, after watching you today, you didn't have the best performance, but I see something in you, and I, I would like for you to come play. Now, that's a part of the story, and, and what happened next was just this total elation of finally reaching this goal of being able to go play at the next level. And I felt awesome. It was so, so good. But over the next year, at this school at the Citadel, had to be probably the worst year of my entire life, where not only was it bad just because it was, you know, military and there were no girls there, but it was just awful in every way. Now, looking back, there's a lot more clarity to the story than when I was right in the midst of it, because I was like, here I am, finally got it. I did this. I did this. But towards the end of that, there were injuries. There were all kinds of things at the end which did not allow me to go back and return. And I ended up here in Statesboro, where I did not want to be. And through that, and looking back at it, I see this super, super high time in my life. And then all of a sudden, this very, very empty place that I found myself in. And it was due to a lot of things. And most of it was sin. It was sin in my own life that I didn't recognize and didn't see, didn't even know was there, but I knew consciously what I was doing. I knew what my behaviors were. It was like, it was like I was a trailer that just constantly found different vehicles to hook myself to and get dragged around wherever they would take me. And those that were pulling me around were certainly not the ones I needed to be pulled by. So it was this high time and there was this low time. And the seventh chapter of Joshua opens with the word but. And the word but is, ah, always you just wonder. Even if somebody doesn't say but, you're like, oh, you're leaning in because you know it's coming, right? You know, I really like your hair. But, you know, it smells like hairspray. I really like this about you. There's that dot, 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 you know, the, the, the dot, dot, dot we see in our heads. We're like, oh, here it comes. You just want to run or throat punch them and get out of there before they say it. But something always follows that that's usually not good. So this, this little conjunction is so powerful, but it drives home this reality that victory has happened for the Israelites. But it was followed by the threat of defeat. Suddenly we're, we're presented with a series of failures that stand like starkly against what we have seen and experienced in the previous six chapters of Joshua. They're going to experience defeat. The gladness of victory was soon replaced by the gloom of defeat. All of this because of the disobedience of one man. One guy. The story tells us and teaches us a lot about the devastating effects of sin. And we're going to get to that. So AI was the next objective in the past of the Israelites, the conquest, because of its strategic location. And with, as with Jericho, its conquest was vital to the conquest of the entire land. 
It was smaller than Jericho, but it was essential because of its demographic location. So Jericho had been placed under the ban. And this is a phrase that's used in the Old Testament, which comes from the Hebrew word harem. It's, it means a devoted thing, a ban. The verb form harem, H-A-R-A-M, means to ban, devote, or destroy utterly. Basically, this word refers to the exclusion of an object for use or abuse by man, along with its irreversible surrender to God. It's related to an Arabic root, meaning to prohibit, especially to the ordinary use. So to surrender something to God meant devoting it to the service of God or putting it under a ban for utter destruction. Now, not here for a Hebrew lesson, but it's very important to understand what God's intentions were for these, for these areas. Because sometimes in our modern world, we read this and we look at it and we go, what kind of God is this? That would put a ban on an entire community, entire village, entire countries in order for them to be annihilated by his people in the name of God. Thankfully, he doesn't do that anymore because of Jesus Christ. Because none of us would be here, right? If it's based on the things that he put out before us in this story. So for something to be under the ban meant one of two things. The first thing is everything living was to be completely destroyed. Everything. It's been called barbaric and primitive at times, but nothing less than the murder of innocent lives. But the Canaanites were not an innocent people. They were vile and practiced immorality, including child sacrifice, practiced prostitution in the temple. And God had, had given them over 400 years to repent, but they did not. 400 years, not like a summer. You know, if we think about, I need to repent about this. I'll drag it out for about a week. 400 years, these people lived in disobedience to God. The one family who did turn to the Lord was Rahab's, and we heard about that last week. And they were spared. He would have spared the whole city. But in spite of all the miraculous works of God, which they had heard over and over, there was no repentance. They remained sinful. The second thing about the ban is that all valuable objects like gold and silver were to be dedicated to the Lord's treasury. This was evidently to be done as a kind of first fruits of the land. An evidence of people's trust in the Lord's supply for their future. You see, it's not that God needed more gold. Not that God needs our money. But God knows how it controls us. God knows how it comes into our lives and controls what we do and how we think and how we live. And he wanted to tell these people, the Israelites, you go in there, you give me that stuff, you destroy everything else, dedicate this to me, and trust me, I will take care of you. But our selfishness gets the best of us. Well, I need to hang on to this. That looks good. Let me, let me put this in my pocket. I'm just going to hang on to this for a little bit longer because it's really valuable to me. Joshua sends out the spies to Ai. They return with this report that it would not be necessary to send the entire army to battle. Ai, two or 3,000 men should be sufficient. It's kind of small. Not many people there. We got this. We got this. The crucial difference is that this time God is not with them. The troops of Israel quite literally had to run for their lives. 36 men were lost in this battle. 
These may not be significant losses in an army of 3,000, but the defeat described here is the only defeat recorded in Joshua and the only report of Jews slain in battle. That's important. Verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. So Joshua is pictured here at his worst. We see him at a, at a time where he is very human. God shows us this humanness. But it comforts us, I think, in our failures. And challenges us to realize that he can greatly use us as well. If we trust him. Failure is not the end. Failure is not something that we live in. In fact, it can be the beginning depending on how we respond to it. In the Bible Most of those who made history were people who failed at some point. And a lot of them failed over and over and over. And some of them drastically. They refused to continue lying in the dust though. Their failure and repentance taught them the grace of God. So to be successful, we must learn that no failure needs to be final. And we act on the the belief whether the failure is our own or even that of somebody else. What if the failure is because of somebody in our lives? Somebody else made a choice that affected us. Joshua, of course, was stunned by the defeat and this catastrophe that happened at Ai. Being prostrate before the ark of the Lord certainly suggests that he and the elders were, they were hum- humbling themselves before God. Joshua and the elders were not guilty of indifference But we're showing deep concern. They were crying out, what in the world happened here, God? They needed God's hand. They needed his wisdom. They needed his intervention. But from words that follow, there was a little bit of self-pity in there too. A little bit of self-pity and a little bit of doubt. Today, we don't usually tear our clothes or fall face down on the ground and put dust on our heads. When bad things happen, but we do have our ways of responding even today. We may fall on our knees or put our face in our hands and sob. There are feelings of self-pity and depression. Most people become inactive and sometimes even withdrawn. They mope around and wear a face long enough to pick watermelon seeds out of a tall ketchup bottle. Picture that for a minute. But these responses don't remove the pain. We know that. The pain is there, but they do, however, enable us to grow through the experience if we're honest and trusting. Verse seven, and Joshua said, alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us to the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? So in one breath, Joshua acknowledges God's sovereignty and lordship over their lives and in The very next breath, he seems to question God's purposes and promises. Alas, sovereign Lord, why'd you do this? In two breaths, he makes that distinction. With that question, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan? He's acting as if God is no longer in control of this situation. Made a mistake or even may have tricked them into coming. How quick we are sometimes to act so religious And then deny God's authority and power by the things that we may say, think, or do. If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. 
Our vision grows so narrow that we lose sight of the Lord because of the circumstances that we're in. We go in reverse and look back. The tendency is to become nostalgic for the good old days. This is why the majority of churches are, are dead or even dying or they're in bad places because they live in the days of old rather than today. In order to be comfortable, we are willing to settle for a life of mediocrity. Just to be comfortable, comfortable, we settle for mediocrity rather than learn what the hindrances are so we can move ahead in the pursuit of excellence. We assume that when we experience defeat, we can't move forward. And it would have just, it would have been better not to have it at all. It would have been better not to have the experience at all. I don't want to do this. We see our failure as somehow weakening God's ability to give us future victories. It's a typical assumption, but one thing is wrong. God's never limited by our defeats. As the sovereign Lord, he's able to work all things together for good. Verse 8. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe us out in the name from your earth, from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? So Joshua doubted himself with the people. He's questioned his leadership. I've messed up, God. What are they going to think of me? Are they going to trust me again? What are they going to think when I come to them and say, um, I don't really know why we got killed up there. Um, but trust me, I got the next one. He was worried about this and rightfully so they had put their trust in him. He's also worried about their enemies, enemies. What will they think? They've seen the Israelites now run from a fight. Just last chapter, they're blowing horns and the walls fell down, right? With horns. That's all about God. And now they're in the midst of tucking tail and running from a fight. What will our enemies think? We're going to be destroyed now. What if they come get us? He's right about one thing. The world is watching us in the way we handle our problems. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, if you don't have it, we'll have it on the Sky Bible for you. But 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 13 says... And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. People are watching. If you are a believer and you are at work or you are at school or you in your family, people are watching. They want to know, is this legitimate? Does this really make a difference in your life? Because for the most of us, when we mess up and we do something that's probably not of God, that's what people see. And they're looking at us and go, how's he going to react to it? Because if he can react like that, then why do I need Jesus? What is the difference? He acts the same way I act. So people watch the way we respond and it's very important. 
Verse 10, back in Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? What are you doing down on your face? The Hebrew word kum meant to rise out of a state of inaction or failure, of showing respect and worship, of rising to hear God's word. It's an awesome word that describes this to this little phrase that we have that we can't even begin to interpret the whole thing or translate it because it's so meaningful in this one tiny word in the Hebrew. But God understands our circumstances. Never condones us being prostrate or laying in the dust when it's time to move. It's another example of taking your next step, of me taking my next step. I can mess up or have a failure and I could lay on the ground prostrate and put dust on my head all day long. But when God says to rise up, he means rise up. It doesn't mean, hold on a minute, God, I got a little bit more dust I need to put on my head. Or I'm kind of comfortable here now in my pity party and I don't really want to get up. And this is different, I think, from how our world says, pull up your bootstraps. Because when God says, pull up your bootstraps, it has a little bit more meaning, doesn't it? And it's not about get yourself together because you're weak. But God says, get yourself together, follow my principles and my promises, and I will give you strength. You're not going to find it in other things. You're not going to find it in the things of this world. But if you will trust me in this, rise up and follow me. I will give you strength. God says, get up off your face. Get your eyes on me and deal with the problem in your life according to the principles and promises of Scripture. Verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That's why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. It's pretty strong words, isn't it? God told me that I would move to another community. I mean, he's telling Joshua, you got to find the mole and kill the mole. Those are strong words in the text. But let's look carefully here. Sin grieves and quenches the spirit. It keeps us from serving effectively. It keeps us from being fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. It, It enters our lives And controls who we are and what we do. It has affected an entire nation. One man's decision affected the entire nation. Verse 13. Go consecrate the people. Tell them consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted thing shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So why were they defeated? Self-confidence, lack of prayer. Being a little overconfident and resting too much in the victories of the past. Joshua failed to take the time to get along with God, to seek his direction and his strength. 
And at the very least, Israel was guilty of overestimating her own power and underestimating the strength of their enemy. There's still too much of a tendency on the part of the people of God to rush off without taking time to draw near to the Lord. But the reason that God allows defeat is there's sin in the camp. There's sin in the camp. Achan, who was involved in the siege of Jericho, saw the riches of the city and decided to keep some things for himself. In spite of instructions forbidding any of the Israelites from doing so, he liked what he saw. So let's consider the devastating effects of sin. There are four of them that I want us to talk about today as we as we go through these verses and continue through this story the first one is that sin affects others it affects others no one's sin is ever just his business alone it always affects others no matter how secret a sin might be it affects spill over into the lives of others disobedience to god is a contagious disease It has serious effects on the broader community of believers. My sin cannot be isolated from you and your sin cannot be isolated from me. And that goes for the people sitting next to you. That goes for people in our community. It goes for anyone. Sin cannot be isolated. It corrupts. What is done in private has a public effect. It's the fills and spills types of scenario. When I think about us filling our life with the Holy Spirit... And we read the text and we're, we're confident in what we're doing and God is speaking to us. It is filling us up. And as it fills us up, it has to go somewhere. Just like you're filling a jar of water. Once you get to the top, if you keep filling it, it's going to come out. It's going to spill out. So if we're feeding ourselves the spiritual stuff, it's got to come out. It permeates our veins. It comes out. However, if there's sin in our lives and we're constantly feeding that, even in the secretness of our home, even the secretness of our vehicles, wherever we may be, nobody knows about this. It's still going to spill out. I had this umpire one time who was just the craziest man I've ever seen in my life, ever been around. Had this ponytail Comes out with these New York Yankees earrings on, which made me hate him right off the bat, but nothing against that. So I'm talking to him. We're in a place where these sand gnats are just awful playing ball. And uh, I said, man, how can you stand stand out here all day in these gnats? Aren't they terrible? He said, they don't bother me a bit. He said, a little bit of Lord Calvert takes care of that. I said, "You, you rub Lord Calvert on you? I've never heard of that. He said, no, I drink so much of it, it just kind of comes out of my pores and keeps the sand gnats off. Oh, okay. But as I thought about that, that's what sin does. That's how sin is in our lives as we continue to sin and we stay in it. It just comes out. It seeps out of our pores. It seeps out of our veins. And it comes out in different areas that we don't even expect it to come out. That's what was happening to the people this day. Because of the defeat, it was immediately apparent that God was no longer behind them. And they were confused. They were hurting. It created misgivings and a lack of confidence in the Lord. And rather than examining their own lives for the source of the defeat, they began to doubt the Lord and wonder if he had changed his mind. 
had brought us out of this place and, and, and maybe God made a mistake. They misunderstood his directions, maybe. And look at themselves. God told Joshua that he was holding the whole nation accountable for Achan's sin. God called this sin a violation of their covenant with him and specified that they were guilty of sacrilege, theft, lying, and deceitful hoarding. And because of these sins, the Israelites had been overrun by the soldiers of Ai. It's hard to imagine anything more frightening than hearing, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. Nothing's more crucial than the presence of God among his people. Nothing should distress us more than the loss of God among us, though. If we step out of God's presence, if we choose to step away from God and we are no longer walking according to his purposes, it will go bad. Bad things will happen. The blessings will no longer be there. It's what was happening to these folks. And they were in the midst of it. I wonder if the apparent absence of God in various segments of churches may be due to our unwillingness to remove evil from our midst. Doesn't mean we call out individuals because of specific sins, but it's a culmination of it. It's not talking about it. It's not dealing with it. It's not being serious about confession and repentance. It's just kind of letting it go. But there are certain things that we have to be firm on. We have to see what the scripture says and how God deals with sin. We don't have the power to deal with it that way, but we have to be, we have to, to understand that it's there and we have to deal with it ourselves. In verse 14, Joshua was given instructions as to how the judgment is to be carried out and promises to point out the man by selecting first his tribe, then his clan, then his family, and finally the man himself. This determination was to be made by the casting of lots, a common practice in the Old Testament for the determination of God's will when no other method was available. But why did God not just reveal this man's identity to Joshua? The answer, I think, is this method would impress on the nation of Israel the seriousness of the sin and would give the guilty person, Achan, an opportunity to repent and confess. I believe that Excuse me, I believe that had Achan immediately confessed and truly repented of his sin, his whole household might be spared. But confession is sometimes too late to stop the discipline. We all hear that. Confession is sometimes too late to stop the discipline. The purpose of confession is not to keep us out of trouble. The purpose of confession is to reestablish fellowship and turn our lives over to God so we can walk in his direction. It's not about staying out of trouble. It's not easy. It may be devastating for some of us today. But as devastating as confession and repentance may be, the other option is death. The other option leads to death. In verse 16, early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward to the tribes and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward and the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of Zerahites come forward by families and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. 
Achan replied, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. The second thing is sin will be discovered. It will be discovered. In verses 16 through 18, the process of discovery is described beginning with all of Israel and narrowed all the way down to this one man. We should note that though Achan did confess his sin, he did so only when he was found out and forced to. It's quite probable that he would not have confessed had he not been discovered. There's no such thing as a secret sin. Trying to hide sin is such a foolish thing. This drunk husband came home one night. He had been out on the town doing his thing. This had been going on and on and on with his family. And he comes home this night and had gotten involved in a fight. So he goes in the bathroom and grabs him some Band-Aids and he quickly takes care of himself to kind of cover it up. And he feels like, man, I got this. She'll never know. Gets in the bed, wakes up the next morning. His wife says, got drunk again last night, right? No, 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 honey. I didn't get drunk last night. She says, well, if you weren't, then who put all those Band-Aids on the mirror? Very good, huh? You can't hide sin. It will be discovered. It's going to come out. Trying to hide sin from God is as foolish as Band-Aids on a mirror. Sin never escapes the watchful eye of God. Numbers 32, 23 reminds us, be sure your sin will find you out. Achan's guilt was determined by his confession and the evidence that was found in his tent. Sin will always be discovered. The third thing is sin has its attraction. Sin has its attraction. Think about what he took. A beautiful robe. He coveted someone's clothing. I know none of us ever, ever do that. But he coveted someone's clothing and thought, that looked good on me. Then he got this gold and he got this silver. When he described the things, though, he described them as spoils. Kind of an attempt to rationalize what he had done. This, this stuff is just kind of meaningless. They're spoils. Wealth plundered from an enemy was usually considered a legitimate reward for participating in a battle. But the wealth of Jericho was not spoils or plunder. And the original instruction given Joshua concerning the capture of Jericho, he stated very specifically that the entire city was under the ban. Everything in the city except for Rahab and her family must be destroyed and burned with fire. But while his comrades in arms were gathering up gold, silver, bronze to be dedicated to God, Achan was sneaking off with some loot to his own tent to bury it. The fact that Achan hid the plunder shows he knew what he was doing was wrong. The process of sin that Achan described is as old as sin itself. The three crucial steps in Achan's sin are given in verse 21. He saw, he coveted, he took. He saw, he coveted, he took. That leads to so many things that we deal with on a daily basis. From pornography to greed, coveting things. We see it, we covet it, we take it. The sin which began in his heart soon spilled out. 
We may be tempted to sin in our minds by the grace of God, confess it before it happens. But if we do not, that which was considered in secret may become an open sin. Verse 22, so Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they buried, burned him, them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. And the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. The fourth thing, sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. And verses 24 through 25 that we just read tells us that Achan and his whole family, all of his possessions are taken to the side. They're stoned to death. They're destroyed and they're burned. From the list of possessions we're given in verse 24, cattle, sheep, donkeys, Achan was already pretty wealthy. He had substantial ownership of things. So his theft was inspired more by greed than need. When we examine the consequence to Achan's family and we are tempted to complain that it's unfair, we would do better to fear. Fear because we realize that one man's sin turns God's presence away from a whole nation, from the whole people. Fear because his whole household was drawn into judgment. We generally have such a tame view of sin. We need to wake up when it comes to the power of sin. Our problem that we don't think, our problem is that we don't think sin is that big of a deal. We can handle it. We cannot understand God's anger because sin doesn't bother us that much. Why does God think it's that big of a deal? This crosses right over into the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, I I mean, I'm sorry the book of Hosea. Hosea's unfaithful wife, Gomer, was representative of unfaithful actions. The same word that begins chapter seven of unfaithful is the same word that's used here. God sees the unfaithfulness of Israel the same as a spouse would be unfaithful to his or her wife or his, you know what I mean? The other person. To be unfaithful in that context. That is a covenant. That is the only covenant that we live by that we see that's in close proximity to what a covenant with God looks like. That covenant with a spouse is so important. And if it is broken, that's where that word unfaithful comes from. Three times God speaks of the judgment that will fall against Gomer. Each of the three judgments is introduced by the word therefore. Because of her unfaithfulness, God warns that he will do three things. First, he says in Hosea chapter 2, God says, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. He's promising to block her actions so that she does not obtain her desires. 
He's going to wall her in to keep her from prostituting herself again. Secondly, he says that he will begin to deprive his disobedient child of necessities. In in verse 9, he says, Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season and will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. The third time that therefore occurs is a direct reference to Achan and his death by stoning. In verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give back her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. God has a way of turning a valley of trouble into a door of hope. Sin does bring judgment, but God can use the judgment to bring about a change in us that allows him to turn a valley of trouble into a door of hope. We sit here today and we're in this room and there are many of us who are are sitting in here in that valley. We live in this condemnation rather than a deliverance of what God can do for us. We're living under this secret sin that is overwhelming us, even sitting right here, right now. It's coming through your mind. You're thinking about it. You're thinking about what you did this morning. You're thinking about what you did last night. You're thinking about this storyline that has been evidenced throughout your life. And it's just permeating in your soul right now. And you're thinking... That's probably what he's talking about. Yes, that is what I'm talking about. Those secret sins. And some of the sins aren't even secret. Some of us don't really care to keep them a secret. We don't really care what anybody thinks. And that goes back to 1 Peter of how God says, people are watching us. People are watching the way we respond. People are watching the things that we do and the things that we say. So if you're living in that valley of Achor, Maybe you're living in that valley of Achor and you don't even know who Christ is. You have no idea. You've never met him. And you need to begin that process today and say, you know what? I have these sins. I have all this stuff, but I have nowhere to go. I don't have a door of hope. That door of hope today is being introduced to Jesus Christ. As Brandon said the last few weeks, this entire story is about Jesus. It leads us back to Jesus every single time. That's what the door of hope is. Door of hope is Jesus Christ hanging on a cross and saying, you know what? No more sacrifices. I'm not going to annihilate any more nations. Just come to me. All who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. So today, I'm going to offer that to you. God offers that to you. He offers himself to you by giving his son, Jesus Christ, to you. And maybe that's something you need to do for the first time today is start a relationship with him. If that's you, I'm going to ask you right where you are to just stand to your feet. You know God's speaking to you right now saying, knock, knock, knock. I am here. Please let me come into your heart. Stand up right where you are. We want to celebrate it with you. We want to pray with you and help you take your next step. Anyone. Thank you, guys. Guys.
couple of our guys would love to pray with you, help you take your next step. There may be others in here if they broke the ice. Anybody else needs to come? We got we got prayer team members coming out of Wazoo. They'll just they'll just start standing up all over the place to pray with you. They love it and they're good at it. But maybe today you're living in that land of acorn. Maybe you are you know Christ, but you have been dealing with this secret sin in your life. I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to open this altar up for just a couple of minutes. You're dealing with that sin in your life and you're saying, you know what? I've got to leave this here. As I told you before, this place is holy. It's magical. When you come down here and you lay your prayers down here at the altar, some special spirit comes and just wipes them out. So next Sunday, they're not here anymore. It's kind of cool. It's not a vacuum cleaner better than that they're gone they're gone and God wants you to do that so for the next couple of minutes I want to open this up to you maybe you want to just come down and pray maybe you want to come with your spouse or your family and just lay some things at, at God's feet and leave them here confess repent move in the direction of God not back in the direction you came in so stand to your feet right now and let's do that for the next couple of minutes come on forward if you want to do that with somebody specifically our prayer team is over to my left to your right you can seek them out they'd love to pray with you just a glimpse and just a a taste of that tenacity that we have and that we can have for you. We pray, God, for a diligence in searching after you. 
We pray, God, that we become jealous of things that interfere with our pursuit of you. God, we thank you for these two young men who went from death to life right before our eyes. But they begin this journey with you, Lord. And as a church, we help them to walk that out and take their next step. God, for the prayers that are laid at this altar, God, we pray for that cleansing. We pray, God, for a new direction for each one of us as we walk back to our seats and that we don't go the same direction. The confession is not about avoiding trouble, but it's about reestablishing fellowship with you. Help us to do that, God. We love you and we thank you, God. It's in your son's name we pray.